Good morning again. If you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6 is where we'll beginning, be beginning again. <clears throat> we're, we're just spending some time here with uh, Noah and the flood. You know, when I uh, first began thinking, okay, how long am I going to be spending in the flood? I'm like, okay, maybe two weeks. Yeah, we're already well past that, and uh, it'll be a minute. So, but I just want us to get comfortable here because <clears throat> the more I study, the more I think, the more I pray about this, I'm realizing that there's uh, so much for us to learn uh, in this account of the flood. You know, last week uh, we talked about the flood and we talked about uh, the faith in the flood and, and how the true idea in the end, uh, the true idea is this ark was a representative of Jesus. It's a picture of Jesus and how he uh, saves us from the flood, from this judgment. Because if you remember historically in Genesis, uh, the people had become very wicked, rebelling against God, and there was only one faithful man, Noah, and uh, so God says, I will save you and your family. And th that's the whole idea is he says, build this ark, get into that ark that will protect you. You will, be, uh, you will raise above the flood and that's what we see, and that, that's all very powerful. And, I mean, I was moved by thinking about it, just by God's grace in, in light of our own wickedness, um, even of the, those of us who have trusted in Jesus, uh, just that, that God would be so gracious to us. And it's, it's a powerful image. It really is. And I believe that's why God gave us that image and that example of this taking place, this judgment and salvation taking place. But here's what we're going to look at today. So what if none of it really happened? What if the flood never really happened? Would that not weaken what we talked about last week, about this, this faith and even God's judgment and, uh, you know, this salvation through him? What I'm saying there is this idea that the flood never really happened. You might say, well, what are you talking about? The flood, as, as well as creation and, and so many other things, and especially Jesus and his death and resurrection, are being fully attacked today. The fact that, that it was a, a real event, that there really was Noah and this ark, that it was really a worldwide flood, not just some little local flood, that maybe a lot of people lived other places, but maybe just Noah's little world. Maybe that's what was flooded. And there, there are a couple of groups. I'll, I'll just kind of list for you real quickly so you can uh, uh, understand what I'm talking about. There are a couple of groups that are attacking, some m more passively, uh, but are attacking the flood narrative. And you would first have, the, you know, the, the atheists, right? The atheistic scientists. And they would, would attack the flood. They, they would say, oh, well, there's no, no evidence for that. We don't see that. Uh, that's, that's not what's going on. That, that flood stuff, that's just those crazy Christians. They just believe uh, anything they hear. Um, what about the fact that the, you know, these things show that they're so old and uh, all these layers uh, represent millions of years? You think about the Grand Canyon, they'd say these layers represent millions of years. And so they say Christians, for, for believing this flood, are, are just dumb. They're, they're dim-witted, they're naive, they just believe whatever they read in this uh, old book that they've got. And so it's being attacked. On the other hand, uh, we have, I don't really have a good name for, for this other group, but we'll call them uh, liberal Christians, okay? These are people who would say, 
the main tenet of liberal Christianity is uh, God's word is not inerrant. That would be the main thing. And from that flow all sorts of other things of like, well, maybe we don't have to really obey him. But anyway, so liberal Christians, here, here's what they do. Okay, the, and that's why I say this is more passive is they hear the atheistic scientists, they hear these people discounting the flood, and then they say, oh no, well, maybe, maybe it didn't really happen. Maybe uh, the flood was just an allegory uh, that God gives us to learn from, but it never really happened, even though the Bible says that it happened, you know, but we're more enlightened and we understand that it didn't really happen. You know, it doesn't make the, the, the Bible and its main teaching untrue, uh, but, it, but it makes just that story untrue. It was just more of an allegory, you know, meant for the, the, the people that were unsophisticated to, to, to be afraid of God or see his salvation. So that, that's what they do. Here, here's how I define that. Uh, these Christians, I, I want to put quote-unquotes on them, but these Christians, possibly Christians, are, are basically bowing the knee to science over the Bible. They, they say... Here's what the Bible says, but science says this, and I'm going to hold science over the Bible. So they try to make the two work together, this atheistic science and the Bible, and so they discount the story of the flood. Well, maybe it wasn't really a worldwide flood, even though Genesis makes it incredibly clear that it was a worldwide flood, and everyone died. The Bible says, well, maybe it wasn't really that, though. You know, maybe, maybe these atheistic scientists are right. We've got to listen to them, otherwise we will be the fools, we'll be the naive ones. And they, they feel like they can throw that out, but this is the first point in your notes there, just that top question I ask, because I, I want us to n understand what's at stake here. What does it mean if the biblical flood is fiction? <clears throat> what, what if the flood is just a fairy tale in the Bible? What, what, what's that, what, what does that cost us uh, if, that's, if the biblical flood is fiction? Well, the first thing it costs us is the, the whole Bible is unreliable. If, if you say in Genesis 6, uh, 7, 8, and 9, you know, that those chapters are fiction, then what makes the rest of this Bible reliable? There are, there are so many books in the Bible that, that refer back to this flood. There are so many books in the Bible that refer back to it. And so, well, I mean, is it just Genesis that's wrong, or is it all these other books that make references back to the flood? You can just, just for a short listing, you have obviously Genesis, you have Psalms, you have Isaiah, Ezekiel, Hebrews, which we've read, uh, Jude talks about it, Peter talks about it, and they all talk about it as though it was an actual fact, as though the flood really happened. Again, this is being attacked with so-called facts that are saying this flood is merely fiction, it's merely, merely a fairy tale, but I say if that's true— then, then let's just get out of here. Let's go have some fun. It's Sunday morning. Let's enjoy our weekend, you know, because all of this, we, can, we might as well throw it away. And I'll tell you the most important reason, and we read it this morning. Keith read it this morning, and we read the Matthew version last week. Jesus says that the flood really happened. We saw that uh, in Matthew 24 and Luke, I can't remember what chapter that was, that he read this morning. But both places, he says... It will be like this when I return. It'll be exactly like it was in Noah's day, an actual time, and people were doing these things, eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. You know, they were doing actual things historically, and then the flood swept them away. Jesus says that the flood really happened. 
So if we are saying that the flood didn't really happen the way Genesis says it happened, then we are saying Jesus is either dumb or a liar, or there's no reason we can believe him. If he's a liar, think about this. If Jesus lied in Matthew and Luke, then we have no atonement for our sins because Jesus is himself a sinner. And he cannot atone for sins if he's a sinner. So if we say that the flood did not happen, then we don't have a savior. We don't have that ark over the ultimate judgment anymore. So th- there's a lot at stake here if the flood uh, narrative is not true. I want to say the flood story, but we often use that term story for uh, fake things. The flood narrative, this flood account. And so what I want to give you today, what I want to show you, is there's no reason that we need to bow the knee to science. There's no reason that we even need to fear that any word of this Bible is not true. That's what I want to show you today, and I want to show you some evidences. This is a different kind of sermon than than we often do. We'll we'll be still looking at the text and and pulling it apart some, but I also want to, to fast forward now to our time and say, well, is there any evidence at all that that the flood even could have happened, much less did happen. That's what we're going to look at today. Is there any evidence at all, or is the Bible and Jesus, our Savior, a liar? That's what we're going to look at. Now, what I want to be careful about, I'm going to just go ahead and tell you this. I want to be careful about uh, discounting the supernatural here. I'm going to show you things that are scientific in nature, Uh, But what I don't want to discount is the fact that that God really made the flood happen. It wasn't just that it was a rainy day uh, and some, some, you know, geysers uh, pouring out water. It was God who flooded this earth. I want to show you that it wasn't just some really crafty guy who built an ark uh, that that he just, you know, did this and he happens to take some animals with him and and he ends up saving uh, the world through that, that this was supernatural. So I don't want to take away from that. That, that is entirely supernatural, and we'll come back to that some throughout this sermon. But I want to give you confidence in the Bible today. I, I've been pushing, uh, or uh, my heart is that we would all be evangelistic, that we'd be sharing our faith. But I want our faith to be strong when we share it. I want us to not be afraid Uh, When people ask questions, I'm not saying you'll always know the answers to the questions But I want you to know that there always are answers to the questions The the, the challenges that come up against the bible and so i'm just taking this time We looked at creation a while back. We said is is creation evolution was the title of that sermon You could go back and listen to that. But this one is is the flood a fairy tale Is this reliable These, these accounts that are under such attack today? Let's pray, and then we'll we'll get into the the verses and into the evidence. Father God, we are weak in our minds. We are often weak in our hearts. We lack faith. We lack courage. So God, I pray that today through your word, through your spirit, you would show us that we can have full faith in you. That we can be courageous. That we can stand up for your word knowing that we have the truth behind us. 
God, I pray that you would show this to all of us. Increase our own faith that we don't doubt you and help us to share that faith with others boldly because we see this account of the flood as true. Father, I pray all this in your son's name. Amen. All right, so we're going to be looking at three evidences today. There are way more evidences I could give you. I won't give you every evidence uh, for this flood narrative or anything like that, but I want to give you some um, that are the best, and what we're going to do is we're going to ask questions. We're going to ask atheistic questions. We're going to ask liberal Christian questions of the text and, and of what we see in the world today. But first, we need to know what the Bible says. What is it that this evidence supports? So number one in your notes, if you want to fill it in, is we'll see the evidence for the ark. Evidence for the ark. And that will make uh, more sense here in a moment. But we'll look at the evidence for the ark. So let's let's see what that's talking about, this ark. If you want to go to Genesis 6, and we're going to read, yeah, verses 14 through 7, 10, through chapter 7, verse 10. I'm just going to read a large section here and then we'll break it apart. So chapter 6, verse 14 starts by saying, God saying to Noah, Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, excuse me, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every, of every living, or every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten, and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household. For I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and its mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of of the ground. And Noah did all that all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the water of the flood came upon the earth. So there are several things I want to point out here. First, we see, uh, I just want to point out some language used here. Uh, God says, uh, 
verse 17, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, which is in the breath, uh, which, which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. We'll, we'll see this many more times, but that, that theme over and over and over again, everything, the whole earth, there's this idea that, that all of the earth will be covered. So this is not a local flood. It's not, not like, uh, you know, Ringgold flooded or even America flooded. It is the entire earth uh, flooded. But the question is, well, if that's possible, th or if that's what happened, then there really would have to be um, all these animals brought onto the ark. And we saw in verse 20 that two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. And he says in uh, verse 3, or sorry, verse 2, take with you seven pairs— Verse 2 of chapter 7, Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. So you see that you need to bring all kinds of animals, two pairs of the unclean, and then seven pairs of all the clean and all the birds. I don't know if you have thought about this, but that's a lot of animals. And this would be one of the first things an atheist or, or even a liberal, so-called liberal Christian uh, would bring up is, could the ark really hold uh, even just two of every kind of animal? Is there enough room on the ark, I guess, is, is the question here. Well, one thing we need to understand, and this is what I want to show you, this is a big point, is what does it mean when the Bible says every kind of animal? Every kind of animal. Uh, see, the problem here is there are over 1.3 million species of animals known today that are including extinct ones. So we have 1.3 million species of animals. So you've got to then bring pairs of those and seven pairs of those uh, if they happen to be one of the clean animals or a bird. There, there aren't many boats that can hold that. Uh, so that's the problem that we have. As they say, there are all these species of animals. There is no way the ark could have held them. But what I want to tell you is this. Is the Bible doesn't say bring every species of animal. Um, so let's use a dog example, okay? A, a canine example. This doesn't say bring a husky, a Pomeranian, you know, a, a, <laughs> I don't know, a golden retriever. It doesn't say that. It says bring every kind. And, and most likely, uh, what it means here when it says kind, as we understand it, is this would be families. Now, I can't remember the, the different orders, but you have, you know, uh, genus, phylum. you got, like, uh, family and species. Family is a, a, a much more wide uh, category of, of animals than, than just, or of, of kinds, than species would be. Species, again, would be that 1.3 million, over 1.3 million but what we understand here is this, this wouldn't have to be every kind in the sense of every possible uh, variation of those kinds. So again, think canines. There would be no reason to bring every type of dog that, that did exist at the time or could possibly exist. You know, rather, all they really needed was, was one pair or maybe even a few pairs. And God has wired—this stuff is getting a little scientific. I'm not going to go too deep. But God has made it where there is enough information in the DNA of canines that they make all sorts of breeds. If you, if you look at uh, information of how many breeds there were even 100 years ago compared to now, 
we have way more uh, species of dogs than, than we did a uh, hundred years ago. Way more. Because why? Well, we, they've been breeding them and changing them, and there's enough uh, DNA, genetic information, that they end up making different breeds. So that's just using the example of a canine. There'd have been no reason for them to bring every species. All they needed was these animals that contain within their DNA, within their genetic information, the information to then breed and make the other species that we now see today. But you do that um, to, to all the animals. We don't know exactly how many animals were on the ark. I'm not trying to fool you here um, into thinking that we do. But all we know is that God has wired animals uh, and, and humans as well, and we'll get back to that, with all this information in our DNA that it wasn't necessary for all species, the 1.3 million, to be there. You say, well, well, how could you be sure that all the genetic information is on the boat? How, how could Noah be sure as he's rounding them up, you know? Well, I want to point out to you, verse 20 of chapter 6 says there, they shall come to you to keep them alive. It wasn't Noah going out trying to figure out, will I get enough uh, genetic information in this boat uh, to have each kind of animal preserved? It was God. Animals don't just come to you. You know, uh, God was the one sending these animals in pairs even, uh, you know, male and female, sending these animals to ensure that all this genetic information was preserved. So, oh, again, we don't Oh, another thing, you can subtract fish. Fish don't need to be in a boat. The, the ark was not an aquarium. They'll do just fine out in the water. So you can subtract that, by the way, out of the, the millions that, you know, of species and stuff. But knowing that it's really just families and just this genetic information that needs to be contained, you're looking now somewhere in the low thousands, not 1.3 million uh, kinds of animals that would be on there. We're, we're going to talk more about that in a moment, but... Think about this, though. Here, another problem that comes up is, what about the big animals? <laughs> you got elephants, rhinoceros, giraffe. You know, what about those? You're telling me there's really two elephants on this thing that, you know, full size, just gigantic? Well, that's the thing. I kind of just hinted at it. There's no reason given us in the text that, that these animals, the big ones, would have to be fully mature uh, adult animals. I mean, baby elephants would do. They would grow up and one day reproduce. Maybe not baby, if, after they're weaned, whatever. Um, so there, there's no reason to think that they had to be fully uh, mature animals. In fact, it would make a lot of sense because uh, the, the smaller version of those animals, the younger versions, would eat less and they would uh, produce less waste um, <laughs> to have to deal with, as well as taking up less space on this boat. That's what we see about kinds, okay? We need to understand kinds. This is uh, most likely families con containing the genetic information for all these species. And that's, again, one attack that's commonly given us. But what about the size of the ark? How big is this? And we covered this some last week. And there's actually just some clarification I want to make. I, I had read this some uh, before last, last week's sermon, but the more I study, study it, the more I'm convinced I gave you too small a size of ark last week. So it said there that it was to be uh, 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits tall. That's God giving 
uh, the, the order for how big it should be. That's 615, gives us that. But the question is, well, what's a cubit, right? What's a cubit? You tell me those numbers, but that's not very helpful. Last week, I gave you the measurements using the short cubit. Because they actually had, back then, a long cubit and a short cubit. A cubit, by the way, is uh, elbow to fingertips. That, that's a, a cubit. And, uh, but they had what was known as a short cubit and a long cubit. A short cubit was 17.5 inches. A long cubit is 20.4. And what I've come to realize, the more I've been studying this, is in most commentaries actually go with the short cubit, uh, but the more I've been studying this, the more I'm seeing that they generally use the long cubit for large constructions. We even see this with uh, Solomon building the temple. That he's using this long cubit. Well, why? Because it's this big construction. Now, again, we got to work with it here a little bit, work with me here a little bit of like, if you're going to uh, measure the size of this room, are you going to tell me inches? Probably not. You might tell me feet or even yards, you know, of how big this room is. It was the same for them. When they did large constructions, they used the, the big cubit usually, the long cubit usually. So instead of the, the ark being 450 feet long, which I said before, it would be more like 510 feet long, 85 feet wide, and 51 feet tall. Again, a football field is, is 100 yards, 300 feet. So this is much longer than, than a football field that you're looking at, over uh, a football field and a half of the, the playing yardage there. This is huge. And then we saw there that it actually has three decks. You see that? It says an upper, a lower, and a middle uh, deck. Uh, or a, a lower, second, and third deck. That's on, in verse 16. So you not only have that size, but you have that size stacked with different floors. And so they have done the math. Uh, uh, biblical scholars have done the math. And this would be equal to about 450 semi-truck trailers. The amount of volume this could hold. 450 I mean, that is a lot of volume, 450 semi-truck trailers. I mean, I don't even know how long that would be if you were to do a, a, a line of them down the road. 450 is a lot. And they've done the math again. Of course, they have to do this for, for shipping uh, animals. But they know that you can fit about 250 sheep in a truck trailer, a semi-truck trailer. That, that you can safely uh, carry them like that. And so what that equals is 120,000 sheep could have fit in the ark, if it were only sheep. Now again, let's think about sheep, though. You say, well, that's only 120,000. Sheep are really quite big as far as animals go. I mean, you have some animals that are somewhat slightly bigger. Again, you'd bring the adolescent of those. Uh, but sheep are really big compared to almost all of the creatures we see uh, in the world. They are definitely on the larger size when you look at it. So what we see here, again, is kind, th this, this containing genetic information. I know we're, this is all kind of weird uh, with the Bible, but I want you to have this confidence in the Bible. You say we need kinds of this genetic information. We see, see that it was most likely the longer cubit making the, the ark even bigger. And so, again, I have not done the math. I haven't done the models, the scale models or anything like that. But they have found that it, that it would actually be quite easy to have fit um, all known families in this genetic information in the ark in that day. I mean, that, that's, again, one of the, the biggest uh, um, 
arguments against the ark that they would bring is you, you couldn't possibly fit that many animals in. But they've, they've done the math. The, the two pairs, or the pair of unclean animals and the seven pairs of clean animals, they've, they've done the math. And they, they say it, it really wouldn't be that big of a deal to fit it in that big of a boat with that much space. Now, well, I, one more thing. This is, this is just uh, an inter- interesting thing. Some would say, well, that's cool, but the flood narrative sounds like it's pretty violent. And it really does. As you're reading the, the narrative, it says, like, the waters burst forth, and, and the rains pour down, and later there's a, a wind that blows over in, in chapter 8. And so we understand that this water probably wouldn't have just been, you know, silky smooth uh, lake-top water in the morning, you know. <laughs> um, it probably would have been somewhat violent of water. So is it possible that this ark filled with animals could actually uh, withstand this flood? Uh, again, I'm not going to spend too long here, but it has now been found that the dimensions of the ark, the, the uh, what would you call it? I don't know. The, the dimensions of the ark are a six-to-one ratio. There it is. Ratio is the word I was looking for. So it is six times longer than it is wide, okay? They have now find out, found out, the, these uh, marine uh, engineers, these people that are working with boats, that this is actually the ideal ratio for a boat to not only be strong and sturdy and comfortable. Like, this, this is the peak. This is, this is where you want to be with a ship of this size. You want to be at a six-to-one ratio. You're telling me Noah knew that stuff, you know, and, and we're, we're going to get to that, but yes. Uh, in fact, I, I remember uh, reading this. They say that the ark, with its dimensions, the way it was built, especially with the weight of the uh, animals in it, which, by the way, would give it ballast, they call it. It's a weight at the bottom of a boat that actually keeps it um, stable. It could handle 100-foot waves, they say, up to, up to 100-foot waves. I think it's going to be all right, especially with God protecting them. I'm not trying to even take that out again, the supernatural. And speaking of supernatural, once again, let's, I, I don't want to take God out of the picture here. I'm, I'm looking at science. I'm looking at modern things we have found out and showing you that it matches with the Bible. But what we don't see in science is how, again, two of each of the unclean animals got on that boat. Seven of the clean and seven of the birds got on that boat. God sent them uh, to, to the ark. And science doesn't tell us how, how a man so long ago, without being able to do these tests, would know the perfect six-to-one ratio of a boat, or even the size of a boat that it would take to hold all of those animals. That's all God. That's all God. God supernaturally had this ark, which we're looking at the evidence for, the ark— be perfect to suit these animals and these humans so that the, the human race could continue to exist and all of these kinds of animals and none be lost. So, evidence for the ark. Could it possibly hold those animals? Could it possibly survive this flood? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. If we understand kinds and, and genetics, uh, which again is totally above what these guys would have understood, but God understood it, right, at this time, what needed to be on that ark. Absolutely. It is big enough, and then it is the perfect uh, size and shape uh, to be able to, to be safe in this flood. Evidence for the ark. There is no reason to discount uh, that the ark could, could do all that the Bible says that it did. 
All right. So let's look at another question. And this one pertains to the flood. Number two in your notes, if you want to hit that. Evidence for the flood. Did this flood really happen? Could it have really happened even? Well, let's see what the flood looks like. This is chapter 7, verses 11 through 24. 7, 11 through 24. We're going to look at what the Bible says the flood was, what it looked like, how, how big it was. In the, six, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 16th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. And rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them, entered the ark. They, and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. Verse 15, They went into the ark with Noah, two and two, of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God had commanded them, as, and the Lord shut them in. So we, we're seeing this flood start. We're seeing that the animals and, and uh, Noah and his family go in. Verse 17, the flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the, on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed over the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. That's 25 and a half feet. Verse 21, And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. After hearing that and reading along with me, I hope you see that there is no question that the Bible is claiming that a worldwide flood occurred. That, that there wasn't some other people that were living in some other continent or something, or some other animals living other places that weren't affected by this. It was worldwide. It says that the, the waters prevailed so mightily that, that it covered all the high mountains under the heaven. They were covered under the heavens. That's under the skies. All of it was covered. All the land, all the mountains, all the hills, 15 cubits deep, it says in verse 20. 25 and a half feet of water, even in the highest uh, land area. The question is, is there enough water for the flood to even have happened? Where, where is all this water? If, uh, if all that water was once on the earth, where is it now? Well, I, I want to say something before we even get there. Where did it come from? We see uh, in verse 11, On that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. This is this understanding that, that water not only came from the heavens, from the sky, but that it was bursting out of the ground. That water was bursting out of the ground. So that's where it came from, but where did it go? 
Here's the problem, I want to tell you, and this is, this is what uh, the, the atheistic scientists and liberal, uh, so-called liberal Christians would say, is if we look at all the water on the face of the earth, and all of the water that's in the clouds, you know, up in the sky, if all of that were to, uh, the, the ice caps were to melt, and all the water were to rain, and it be dry up in the sky, but only wet on the ground, the, the water of the earth, the oceans, would only rise about 300 feet, okay? If, if the ice caps melt, all the water on the earth, you have about 300 feet, less than 300 feet, in fact. And that is a problem because uh, we have mountains that are over 20,000 feet tall. So those things uh, aren't even close to touched. That's a big problem, uh, you know, from, from their point of view. So how do we account for that? Where, where is this water? Where, where, where is it gone if there was more? But here's the answer to that question. To the answer to it, could, it be, could it happen with the amount of water we have? That calculation assumes that the surface of the earth is exactly the same today as it was back then. What I'm saying is that that calculation assumes that there were uh, 28,000 foot uh, tall mountains, and it assumes that there were uh, seven mile deep caverns in the ocean already at that time. But is that true? Were, were there always this high of mountains that we see today? Um, or were there always these great deep caverns, valleys in the ocean? And we'll, we'll get to this more. You'll, you'll probably wondering where I'm going with that, but let me just show you that that's not only not necessarily true that the earth is the way it is today. In fact, we can measure the mountains rising still today. We can measure them getting bigger, but it, you'd be looking at millions of years if it was at that same rate. Uh, but the Bible actually tells us that that's not true, that the, the surface of the earth is the same uh, today as it was back then. Psalm 104, Psalm 104, verses 5 through 8. It says this, He, God, he set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garments. The water stood above the mountains. What's that talking about? You covered it the, the, this earth, this foundations with the waters as with a garment, the water stood above the mountains. That's reflecting back here on Genesis, isn't it? This flood, it was, uh, the waters were above the mountains. And then it says this, At your rebuke they fled, these waters fled. At the sound of your thunder they took flight. This is what we need to see. Verse 8, The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. The idea here is, when this water came out of the earth, when this water poured down from above, there was a massive change that took place on the earth. Not only at the time of the flood, but even as the waters receded. I don't know if you, you know, watch the news and, and see things like these landslides that happen, these massive landslides that happen, usually in countries that are less uh, well-developed. They haven't figured out how the, the runoff is going to affect them. Or maybe you've seen where a, a dam or a levee breaks and it just crushes a town and it pushes all this sediment and it pushes all these things. Those are teeny, tiny little floods in comparison to what we're talking about here. We're talking about a worldwide flood that literally the, the face of the earth was, was broken up as it released the water 
and then pushed all over the place as the water flowed around. That, that's what we see here, and it says there, um, so the waters as they were going away in verse 7, verse 8, the mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. So we have this water covering the earth, and then as it recedes, as we see in chapter 8 uh, later, as it recedes, these mountains are rising up, still in the exact same way as we understand in our science book. These plates are shifting. Uh, there, there are all these changes going on. Some are going under. Some are going over. Mountains are being pushed up. Valleys are being pushed down. This is all going on. The, this sediment is pushing. These huge plates are pushing. And that's how we get these huge mountains. Let me tell you uh, something interesting. If, if our world were perfectly flat, okay, like the, the earth part, the uh, dirt, I guess we'll call it, earth and rock and everything but water, were just perfectly round, a perfectly round ball with uh, no water underneath it, no, no mountains sticking up, no, no anything like that, it would actually cover the ground by almost two miles, the water that we have. It's actually the imperfections, if you would call them that, the, the raises and the dips in the earth under the ocean that make the water uh, more spread out. I mean, it only makes sense. The, the ocean floors go down, the water rests down in there, and there goes some of your water. The, the mountains uh, poke up, and there, there again goes some of your water, displacing it out. So if the earth were perfectly flat, perfectly uh, round in that sense, the, the substance of it, other than the water, would be under two miles of water right now. And we see... Again, that after this flood, these big mountains, these valleys happen. I'll, I'll tell you something. I'm not saying that there weren't mountains uh, before the flood, because it says right there in the, these verses, right, that it covered the high mountains. But what I'm telling you is uh, mountains may not be what we're thinking of as, as mountains. They're, they're these high mountains. But even that word mountains uh, can also be translated hill. Uh, there, there's really no big difference in uh, the Hebrew language about which it is. It's the, the editors um, that have translated our translations call it high mountains, but it could just be high hills even. But even with mountains, if you were to bring someone, fly them into Chattanooga or into Ringgold from Nepal, where Mount Everest is, they would look at, at Lookout Mountain and say, uh, yeah, that's not a mountain. <laughs> that is a hill. And so it's all kind of perspective. You know, we look at the, the earth today and we say, well, there's these, th that's what a high mountain looks like, Mount Everest. But that's not necessarily what Noah would have thought of, or even, uh, I guess Moses would have been after the flood, but, you know, what they would have thought of as a high mountain, high hill. So, is there enough water for the flood? It, where did it go? Yes, there is enough water, and it went into our oceans, mainly. Almost all of it is in our oceans. There's fresh water, but that makes up a teeny amount. And then you have some in the sky, but that's, again, a teeny amount. And then you have the, uh, the poles that have the glaciers and things, and that's a relatively small amount. The water is all still here. The earth has changed. That is where the water has gone. So is there enough water? Where is it gone? Yes, there's enough. It's just in our oceans. You guys tracking with me here? There's, there's no reason scientifically that we can uh, discount this. We say if something like that happened, is there any evidence that it happened? Is there any scientific evidence that this flood actually happened? 
You know, uh, atheistic scientists would say, no, we don't have evidence for the flood. In fact, we have uh, opposite of evidence for the flood. But is that true? Is that actually true, that there is no evidence for a flood? I'm going to just list for you several evidences, geological, archaeological evidences that we have that uh, don't make sense without a global flood. Uh, First, marine fossils found on the tops of mountains. Marine fossils. You're looking at shells and these other uh, swimming creatures. They find these on the tops of very, very high mountains uh, that they're fossilized. What does that tell you? That shells one at one point walked or that fish at one point walked and went up there and died? You know, No, that tells you that at one point that area was underwater. Even though it's now thousands of feet above the ocean, it is there. And that sure sounds like... Uh, there were some geological changes, catastrophic, not just little changes of the, they kind of slowly went up uh, over millions of years. It sounds like something big happened. And another thing is fossils, the very idea of fossils like that. They're, they're even across uh, the, the world what, what they call fossil graveyards. And what that is is places where there are literally billions of fossils that, that they were all covered over and fossilized at, at what looks like one time. Here's the thing. Fossil graveyards do not happen without massive uh, land shifts, massive uh, landslides that are pushed across with water in massive amounts of pressure. You don't get a fossil graveyard over millions and millions of years. You get dead things that, that rot and erode. You know, uh, you kill a squirrel out in the woods, it's probably not going to turn into a fossil, Right? because it wasn't covered over and it wasn't pressurized. However, you have these huge graveyards where clearly massive amounts covered over, pressured over, and they were all fossilized. And the same for those uh, marine fossils. They're covered over, and then in all this (laughs) catastrophe, boom, someone help me, Uh, catastrophe, they were then raised up even after being fossilized. This is insane stuff that went on. And we have so many different things. I, I want to, I'm picking over what I'm going to talk about. Okay, another one is, you have the layers, such as in the Grand Canyon. Again, they say, well, you have this layer came, and then, you know, millions of years elapsed, and then another layer came on top of that, uh, maybe because of a, a small flood, and then another layer. That's not the picture that we actually see in these uh, sedimentary layers. That they're called strata. The, these layers are strata. What we don't see is erosion oftentimes. So what that means is you see a layer and they, they uncover that layer, but it looks like that, that layer is, was brand new. There wasn't erosion. There wasn't uh, things that, that washed it away. It looks like that strata, that layer, existed for only a very, very short period of time before it was covered over again. And then the same thing again. Again, that looks exactly like what we're seeing with this, these oceans bursting forth, the mountains rising up, the valleys sinking down. You have all these layers of the earth folding over one another in this rapid succession. And that's exactly what we now see in science. These are things they cannot explain. In fact, they explain away with um, fanciful things. I'm going to stop giving you evidences, but you can look at so many more of these uh, for reasons that the flood basically had to have happened scientifically. Bible-believing or not, there was a worldwide flood, and we still exist magically, and all the animals still exist magically, um, so there had to have been an ark. But anyways, 
Why don't we hear about this evidence from scientists? Why don't we hear about this evidence from scientists? These atheistic scientists. It's all out there. I mean, truly, it's all out there. It's not hard. I'm uh, not at all a scientist, yet I was able to find this information. Uh, Let me tell you why they don't see this uh, as evidence for the flood. They don't see this as evidence because they start with the presupposition, the assumption that there is no God, therefore there was no worldwide flood, therefore there was no ark that saved all, uh, that, you know, saved the human race and all uh, kinds of animals. They're simply backing up uh, what they already have presupposed and believed. The problem is, when your presupposition is false, you're likely to come to, to bad conclusions, right? When, when all you're worried about is keeping your, your presupposition, God does not exist in place, then you're willing to find all sorts of other reasons. And we saw this with creationism, if you were here during that time. The, the, the theories for how this world came into existence is, is absolutely insane compared to, well, God spoke it into existence, and then that's what we see today, you know. But they have the, these insane theories. Um, why? Because they have to do away with God. They have to do away with God, and so they, they try to cover up the evidence. They don't talk about it, that's for sure. You don't see many of their journal articles about how, man, this, this looks like a flood. In fact, you actually do see some uh, atheistic ones, but uh, they, they don't get very much backing uh, when they reveal this evidence that shows the Bible to be true. And that, again, is all we're doing, is showing that the Bible, what it says, what it tells us, the description of the flood, the ark, is absolutely real. Yes, there was a flood. Enough water. Yes, there is evidence. They cover up the evidence because they don't want there to be a God. All right. Last piece of evidence we're going to look at, and then we'll apply these things. Number three, evidence for the people. Evidence for the people. That is uh, humankind, people. If you want to skip ahead to chapter 9, verse 1. This is after the flood and uh, after the waters have receded and, and all these things. Chapter 9, verse 1, it says there, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. All of a sudden, maybe your mental gears are turning right now. So, everyone has died on all the face of the earth, except for Noah and his three sons, except for Noah, his wife, and his three sons, and their three wives. What does that tell you about um, our ancestry? I don't have to go on Ancestry.com, get my DNA taken and turn it in to tell you that my uh, great, a thousand times over, grandpa is actually Noah. Did you realize that? That we are all related to Noah and his family. In fact, we're all descendants of Adam. I can tell you who my uh, 10,000 times over, you know, descendant was, is, is Adam. Acts 17, 26 says this, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Everyone, all nations even, this is talking about, come from this one man, Adam, and then here um, through Noah, because every other family was, was wiped out. So everyone is from the family of Noah, but the question is, a lot of people don't look like me uh, or even what I picture Noah as looking at, looking like. Where did all these races uh, come from? If there was only this one descendant, 
How could it be possible that there are uh, different skin colors and people who are, are very tall and very short cultures that are, are even that way? Uh, nations that are marked by these attributes. How is that possible that we have all these races? Again, these are huge stumbling blocks, and they can sometimes be scary even if you, you think about them for the first time. <laughs> oh no, this doesn't look like uh, creationism or, or the flood happened. If, if everyone came from Adam or came from Noah's family, then how could there be all these races? All right, let me, me answer this question. Uh, first, I'll just begin by saying race, as we think of it, is not in the Bible at all. Uh, we have the human race, and that's it. You have, uh, th- there, there are no different races. What we think of as race is often uh, skin color, this pigment. Uh, it's often features, prominent features, again, height or size of nose or just general looks. The, you know, the way our eyes look or squint or, or wide open or whatever. These are the things that we think of as race. But really, those aren't racial differences. We're all part of the the human race. And we know, uh, again, that that we all descend from Adam and Eve or Noah. But you remember what I talked about with uh, the animals, the kinds, that they contained genetic information uh, in their DNA. The exact same thing is true for humans. That in Adam and Eve, in Noah, there was the genetic potential for all Uh, types of people. Again, I don't even want to call them races because that's not really a biblical thing. There's the human race. So all these things are are just differences. Again, skin color, uh, uh, eye color, um, just these prominent features. And even, I would say, uh, as well, there are uh, mutations now since we're under the fall, right? You think of uh, the sun shines on you and it actually mutates uh, your skin, and that's that's skin cancer. and the, the, the mutations occur, and these things do happen. Uh, but at the DNA level, let me just say this. At the DNA level, humans are astoundingly similar. So we think of people as different race because of this barely little outside part of our bodies, this, our skin color, this teeny little difference in our eyes. Let me tell you, uh, 99.9% at the, the, at the DNA level, we are all exactly the same. In fact, it's a little higher than that, 99.9, uh, you know, and, and so on. 99.9%, we are all exactly the same at a genetic level. If they were to take your DNA, you would be 99.9, the same as a person you see in a National Geographic magazine that looks nothing like you. 99.9%. That means 0.1, less than 0.1% difference Uh, between what we now have labeled as races. I would, by the way, say that that this idea of race may have started out okay, but it's most likely a a way to leverage our races better than yours. You're you're not one of us. It is is most likely not, not a good thing. There are different nations. There are different tongues, as we'll see uh, with the Tower of Babel next week. Uh, But what happens here? How do do they end up differentiated? That's another question. Well, how do we get uh, uh, dark skin? How do we get light skin and these things? Well, when you have um, inbreeding, which I realize that's uh, a touchy word with us, but it's not always been a bad thing, by the way. That was only later, uh, far later in the Bible, that there were laws given against inbreeding. It was necessary when Adam and Eve were the only people, right? You know, that their children then inbreed. It, It wasn't Uh, anything sinful or wrong with that. That was part of God's plan. But with inbreeding, it it means that there are certain traits that end up becoming uh, dominant, okay? 
you have uh, these, these groups that, that would uh, separate and breed with one another, and there would be certain traits that would end up uh, becoming more and more dominant over time, and that was oftentimes even uh, traits that would help them to survive in that area, because a person who lives longer is able to uh, uh, procreate more. You say, well, when did this happen, that these groups would break off and, and interbreed with one another? Genesis 11, we'll get there. We're not going to uh, read it today, but we will see the Tower of Babel, that everyone was together. You had this big group, this big pool of people uh, to be procreating with, so that would be uh, less close of inbreeding, right? But then you see these groups separate as their languages are separated, and then they have these much smaller groups, clans, families, and these procreate, 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 and these uh, skin tones, these... Uh, Things become more pronounced about them, and those end up becoming nations. Again, the, God has—we are fearfully and wonderfully made. There is a lot in our DNA, in our genes, that the, there's no reason to, to think that there couldn't be uh, Noah as our thousand times grandfather. And we, we just see that. This is, this is nothing different than, than, what the, than what the Bible tells us. Okay. So I've spent some time giving you these evidences. Again, those, those don't prove the God, God's word. That God's word is, is, in my opinion, self-sufficient. But I want to show you that it matches up very well with what we see in the world today. That there is uh, nothing that the world or atheists or, or so-called liberal Christians can throw at this word that will make me deny its full inerrancy. And I hope the same is true for you. We've seen that. And we talked about at the very beginning, what does it mean if the Bible is not true? You know, and we, that's kind of a scary thought. Sorry, not if the Bible isn't true. If the biblical flood isn't true, uh, then that means the Bible isn't true. That means that Jesus was a liar. It means we have no salvation. But if as we have seen today, and as we see in God's word, these things really did happen. If the flood is not a fairy tale, if it is fact— what does that mean? Well, first, it means that the Bible is completely reliable. I mean, that's a, that's a crazy story if it's a story, this, this flood, worldwide flood. In fact, other uh, nations have uh, worldwide flood narratives. Other cultures have that. wonder where they got it from. Um, so it, it, it's, it's kind of crazy, but if we see it now to be true— we can trust the rest of the Bible. We can see that, that all of the Bible is completely reliable. I mean, archaeologists and scientists truly are just still catching up with the Bible. It's continually happening. I, I'm always and every time going to put the Bible above science because science will be found to be wrong anytime it contradicts this God's word. But we're finding many more times, more often than not, it's not even contradicting God's word. It's supporting it. What does this tell us if the biblical flood is fact? Sobering, but we need to not forget what was going on here. If the biblical flood is true, then God really judges sin. God really pours out his anger, pours out his wrath on sinful, wicked mankind. God does not let the guilty go unpunished. So we don't cross our fingers and hope that God will just let us slide. It does not work that way. God punishes sin. We see that in the flood. He did it back then, 
And as the passage in Luke said, he does it with, with Lot, with Sodom and Gomorrah. There, there are these times that God gives us a display of his judgment of sin to remind us it will not go unpunished. But another thing, if this uh, account is true, if it is fact, we know that although the guilty do not go unpunished, we know that Jesus took our guilt upon him. That in the same way the ark was the savior of Noah and, and his family and of the animals, that Jesus is a sufficient savior. God does not let sin go unpunished. He does not. But it turns out he punishes our sins in Jesus Christ. The punishment that we deserve, that wrath, that flood of judgment that we deserved was poured out on Christ. He took that punishment. And the Bible tells us, uh, uh, this, this perfectly true, perfectly reliable book tells us that that amazing salvation, that amazing uh, payment for sin uh, can be ours by trusting in Jesus and turning from our sinful lives. If the flood is a biblical fact, if it, if it really happened, then salvation is real just as much as judgment is real. There is a shelter. And I would go on to say, I mean, we could, we could take this very far, but you think of all these promises we have in the Word. You say, okay, I've trusted in Jesus. I've, I've, I've seen that He's my salvation because I believe what the Bible says. Well, keep on believing the promises of God. If God's Word is reliable, search this book for promises. We have all sorts of promises in this book that tells us that then we are saved, that we are also empowered, we are comforted, we are, we are able to be used in ways we would never believe without God's promises. And if God's word is true, if this flood really happened, then we can believe all those other promises as well. There's a lot here in, in this flood narrative. There's a lot at stake if we let go of it being true. But the beauty is, we're not doing cartwheels over here to show that it's true. Science is more and more showing that the flood is a fact, that what the Bible says, word for word, is exactly true. We can trust God. That's good news. That's good news for my own faith as I uh, read and study God's word and try to apply it. That's good news as I go and share my faith with other people. My, my confidence uh, can be displayed to them, even when they ask hard questions. I can say, I may not know the answer, uh, but it's there. There's an answer. God's word is reliable. As we come to this uh, communion table here at the end, I just want us to uh, think this communion table, again, is reserved for those who have trusted in Jesus. But I just want us to think, am I truly trusting God's word? Am I truly trusting God's word? And there are some questions we can ask ourselves for that, right? Have I seen my sinfulness the way the Bible says it? I wasn't just a little bit uh, naughty, you know, like Santa Claus might call me. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. Child, a child of wrath, like the rest of mankind, Ephesians 2 says. But God, being rich in mercy with the great love with which he loved us, makes us alive together in Christ when we trust him by faith. We, is that a reality in my life? Have I trusted in Jesus for salvation? Or am I just doing religion, church, something that will not save you? Only Jesus saves you. And then, if you have trusted in him, 
Is it changing you? Is the Bible guiding your life and your actions? If it's not, why would you say that you even trust it? You know, if, if you have this uh, lamp for your feet and it's not guiding you, it probably shows that you, you don't really believe it. Are you trusting in God's promises and acting upon those? Finally, are we letting other people know about this coming judgment? If it's true, it's a big deal. And people are going to be swept away. This, this eternal judgment as well as uh, the physical judgment we see here in Genesis, it's coming. But so is salvation. Salvation has already come in the person and works of, of Jesus Christ. And we can tell them you can trust in him if we believe the Bible is true. We can share the gospel with confidence. Let's pray.